0: This edition of the Supercluster podcast is powered by Dropbox. Here at Supercluster headquarters in New York City, we use Dropbox every day to produce our content, including this podcast. Space fans, and welcome to another episode of the Supercluster Podcast. This is Jamie Carrero, and I'm here with Eric Collins.
1: Hi, this is Eric, longtime listener, first-time caller.
0: And today we're going to talk about an amazing story from the Apollo era. This is how we brought a car to the moon. And, you know, when you look back at this story, it seems almost like a given, like, oh, yeah, well, we went up there, we brought the rover, we drove around, we explored. But we have to remember how much of a wild dream this is. You know, this is the most unknown terrain that you could imagine. When they were designing this thing, they didn't even know what the moon was made of, really. They didn't know what kind of surface it would be, whether they could even drive on it, what that would be like. And then you have to figure out a way to get it there. You have to figure out how to overcome all these problems That basically make an Earth car pointless once you're up in space on the moon. But I think even more broadly, it's an expression of a human dream that started with Werner von Braun, but really spread into the entirety of humanity that we're always going to go the extra mile as explorers. That we're not just going to go to the moon, we're going to go to the moon and then drive over the hill and see what's over that next mountain.
1: Yeah, and for me, I'm glad we're talking about this because this is a subject which has led to an artifact, which I would encourage everyone listening. If you haven't seen it, stop right now and Google Apollo 16 stabilized HD rover footage because there is a video clip, which I think is a kind of gateway drug that you can show to your friends to get them into space. And I've shown it many times in the past. And it does something that a lot of big, important science projects don't do. So. I'm thinking about maybe there will be a discovery at the Large Hadron Collider or something where you'll be reading an article and it'll say, "New exotic form of matter discovered that exists in multiple dimensions, and that sounds mind-bending, and you'll want to say, "Well, show me the discovery, show me what you guys what did you actually see and And then when you see it, it's like a spreadsheet or something. yeah you know? like yeah, it totally It doesn't really do it and this is this is I think, a really important thing because it is both. On a technical level, one of the most amazing things humans as a species have done, and it also is highly appealing to
0: twelve-year-olds. Just a base level of adventure going on here. Just a base level of like this is a. I mean, one of the astronauts even said it in the radio when they were driving it. It's just a cool ride. It's an amazing experience that they had.
1: <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. Like, and they're doing things. You might if you haven't seen the footage you might think, well, okay, that you know they're probably going like a meter at a time. We we need to test the treads, we need to make sure everything's working. But then when you watch the, the clip in question that I'm talking about, it's it's from Apollo 16. They're just ripping donuts on the moon, just slamming into craters and <laughs> it's, you know, it looks yeah. like, it looks like what you would do if you had a dune buggy and you were on the moon. And that's why I love it because it's it's both incredible on a scientific level as an achievement but it also is so viscerally human that these astronauts just got just got to blast around almost like on a day off.
0: Yeah absolutely and you know you have to remember that it's an off-roader like the moon has no roads it's all rocks and dust and (laughs) you know they had to make sure that this thing could handle it so it's got a heck of a suspension it's a bouncy ride you know and like you said it really is like a dune buggy. The other thing that I think is really amazing about that clip is that so much old footage almost has like a pastification feel where because of the color temperature or the frame rate or just the way that it's played back with the film scratches, that it it distances the audience. And that can be good because sometimes you want to reach into the past and you want to feel that history. But in this case, it makes it seem like it's happening on TV right now. And it gives it this immediacy, this relatability, like somebody went up there with their iPhone and just held it in front of them while they rode on the rover. And and that really makes it real for me.
1: Yeah, my favorite part of that clip actually is it begins, you're watching it from a distance, and you can kind of see it blasting around and kicking up dust. But then there's a cut to ride-along footage, actually, where one of the astronauts is sitting shotgun just filming out the window. That's the part that really gets me. That's where you feel it's It's you and your buddy. You get to be there and i'm kind of i'm not a purist about it I, there's so there's the stabilized and the unstabilized version i i go in for the stabilized version it adds a whole another level of otherworldliness unintended
0: yeah i mean there's there's something to be said for like oh but this is what history is and you're adding more information but i would make the argument that you're just illuminating something because the astronauts didn't experience it in 24 frames per second or 18 frames per second whatever, whatever it was they experienced it in real time they experienced it that way so in terms of making something feel the way that it really was i would say that the feeling is probably more accurate in that one the only element that might be pushing it out of reality is if they stabilized out some of those bumps that were actually bumps in the ride but yeah for sure i I still think you get the idea
1: that's me kind of waxing about why i think that video is so incredible and i hope everyone watches if you haven't seen it but how did they get there
0: yeah yeah because the symbolism is amazing but also the path of how this happened is amazing one of the central things that made this an extremely challenging project not just that you have to build a space car flat out that's a hard thing to do but they had to make it drive on a surface that no one knew about in the early 60s when they started thinking about this i mean heck Werner von Braun was drawing pictures and writing magazine articles about this in the 50s. But in the early 60s, no one had ever landed on the moon, obviously, but also hadn't got any lunar samples returned. So we literally did not know what that surface was going to be like. Didn't know if you were going to sink into it. Didn't know if it was hard as a rock, all kinds of things like that. So the early designs were really wild. You had giant Archimedean screwdriver type designs where it would tunnel through in case it was a very fine dust. They had designs with six and eight wheels so that it could go over all kinds of uneven terrain. They had tank tread designs. They even had a dual tank, like, you know, almost like one tank towing another one. And in the early days, they had actually planned for the rover to be a fully pressurized habitat that they could drive around and then live in for several days.
1: Yeah, one of the things I learned reading about this was the early Apollo plans were for each mission to have two Saturn Vs, one to take the astronauts and the other to take their equipment and their gigantic roving vehicles, which is very sci-fi. And I kind of wish that had happened.
0: Yes, that would have been amazing. It reminds me of things like, you know, in in The Martian when they have a mission that goes to land all their gear and then they send the people. So I agree it's super sci-fi to think about. The main problem obviously was weight. That lunar rover and all the other equipment was just so big and heavy that they thought they would need an, a, another Saturn V. But the problem was once we landed on the moon, everybody got more price conscious. So Congress was breathing down NASA's neck thinking like, "Okay, how many times are we going to do this at this massive cost?" And the idea,
1: right, which is very funny, because at that point, it had been twice or something, you know?
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
1: Hey, guys, how many times are we going to go to the moon? Three times? Four? Exactly.
0: Yeah. I mean, people were arguing about this after the first time, which is which blows my mind. Yeah. So the idea of, you know, of essentially doubling the cost of every launch from a vehicle perspective was not attractive. So the original lunar rover program was canceled. There's the test vehicle that they built. There's all kinds of design documents and research that was done, but it was shut down. And the only way that it kind of came back to life is when somebody offered the team who had built that original rover this pie-shaped wedge in the lunar lander. So obviously weight when you're landing on the moon is a huge premium as is space. But they had this one area on the lunar lander that wasn't gonna be used, this storage bay. It's essentially the shape of like a tall slice of cheesecake, you know? So it's like a triangular wedge that's kind of tall. I think it's 1.3 meters square on the opening and then less than one meter deep. So it's really not a big space. And so they're told, the team is told, if you can fit a car in that space, we will fly it to the moon. And he also gave them, you know, weight restrictions.
1: Yeah. And I have some amazing information about some amazing stats about that. So there was the original, from the original idea to the point they had a working rover ready to go on the lander was 18 months. And from the time a, a contract was issued, it was 13 months. So imagine that you 13 months, just about a year from someone at, Boeing being told they needed to design a rover, to functional rover, ready to go to the moon.
0: Yeah, absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, and and like you mentioned, it ended up being Boeing and GM, General Motors, that worked together to get this done. There was a the lead engineer designer named I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, so forgive me, but Ferenc Pavlik's, and also program manager Sam Romano of GM. They really led this effort to get this done. I'm glad you did
1: that one because I wasn't sure how to do his name either.
0: Yeah, yeah, fair. I'll just call him Pavliks for now yeah, because I think go. his last name is easier. But yeah, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, th- think about the fact, I think I saw in one interview, Sam Romano mentions that to develop a normal car that GM would sell to people is a four-year cycle from when they start that process to actually getting one on the road. And they had to make a moon rover to drive on an incredibly unpredictable, unknown surface. And they did it in just over a year, like you mentioned
1: yeah and there's amazing things they solve for one thing that i didn't really i think something that always tripped me out about the rover was you can tell that it's sort of missing a transmission it doesn't look like it should work and then the the reason for that is obvious there's a motor in each wheel but i didn't really think about that until oh yeah researching so there's there's four separate motors driving each wheel that's that's why it sort of looks like a fake it doesn't seem like it should work because it's just it looks like wheels attached to a
0: plank or something like what's actually yeah it looks like the part of the car you know you're watching like the weird time-lapse video of a car appearing it's like step one and they didn't put (laughs) they didn't put the engine in they didn't put the transmission in they didn't put anything in and then they just stopped and put it on the road yeah it really does look so ultra minimal and you know that's because it had to be this was it's it's sort of like the lunar lander itself. They talk about that some of the foil on the lunar lander was so thin that if they had happened to drop a wrench while they were building it, it would just poke through the floor and destroy the rover, uh, not the yeah. rover, the lander. It would destroy the lander. And there's this sense that to cut weight, everything was made with bits of tape and glue and string and things like that. And that design feeling definitely showed up in the rover. Obviously these are incredibly technical, high quality, custom built machines. But they're done at absolute limits, you know, like as light as it can be, as weak as it can be, as thin as it can be um, at every point to make sure that they hit those uh, weight and size limits.
1: Yeah, the, the tires are kind of an amazing part of that story. And in, the, in an archival film I found, I have this quote here that describes the tires. The LRB tires are made of a woven mesh of zinc-coated piano wire to which titanium threads are riveted in a chevron pattern. I love that description
0: totally yeah you know it it, it points to one of the problems in making a car for the moon is that you can't do any of the things that you do for a car when, when you're on the moon so like tires can't use a tire because there's no atmosphere so if you inflate it it will blow out and also you can't use it because it's rubber and on the moon it the temperature change from hot to hottest to coldest is 270 degrees so the rubber would just totally deteriorate in that condition Right. So they had, you know, the joke is always made when people tell the story they had to reinvent the wheel. And the mesh was a really brilliant solution because this woven, it was hand-woven on a loom, by the way, like a person sitting there making these meshes, curving them into cylinders and wheels. The mesh had two really good properties. One, it was flexible, just like a real tire, it would conform to what you were driving over and then return to its shape. So it operates like a like a tire. The other thing is that because of the way mesh behaves when it's compressed, The dust, the lunar dust that would get kicked up into the inside of the wheel would then be released. Because you can think when you have a piece of mesh, if you compress it a certain way, the openings in the mesh enlarge. And that would happen naturally as the wheel is rotating. So dust would go in, but then it would get expelled through the larger openings that are occurring naturally through that motion.
1: Yeah. One property of the mesh wheels that I found was that it it kicked up a lot of dust actually that had the tendency to get on the astronauts. and that required the fenders which leads us to this really beautiful aspect of the rover when you look at it one of the things that strikes me as a designer is these these kind of perfectly arced beautiful fenders and i, I always kind of wondered did it have to be so pretty you know <laughs> did it like did somebody yeah. did somebody really do that be because it just looks so beautiful and i guess the answer is both yes and no they they were critical and actually a few times they've broken and caused problems on the moon but they also are I think what makes the shape of the rover so iconic
0: I agree and actually until you mentioned that I hadn't really thought about it it's so it fits so well that I think I just overlooked it it's like oh yeah that's how you do that but if you're cutting every last bit of weight you know you aren't going to put wings on the thing (laughs) you know you aren't going to paint speed lines on it but the fenders being necessary and aesthetically pleasing is really wonderful i mean honestly the whole thing i think looks pretty amazing with that dish antenna and the you know gold colored video camera on the front and all that kind of stuff that big block of batteries i think it's a pretty amazing looking vehicle
1: yeah i think some automotive designer at gm was sneaking in a little bit of flair here and there maybe things didn't have to be exactly that way but he knew what he was doing
0: Absolutely. You know, they did make, speaking of the wheels, they made 10 different prototypes of metal wheels with all different kinds of arrangements of metal rings and meshes and stuff until they finally settled on this one. And they tested them all in these sort of dirt bins where they would build a bunch, they'd take a bunch of rocks and a bunch of soil and sand and make these very complicated different terrains to make sure that it was robust. But then they also had their like, as close as they could get moon simulation, and they would just run it essentially there would be like a ring, you know, like some kind of circle container that has that dirt and dust in it. And then they could run that under the wheel. So they have the wheel on a machine that's testing its bounciness and the forces involved and everything like that. And then the ground is moving under it, you know, and because of relative motion, it doesn't matter. But that that experiment led them to learn how much power they had to put in each of those motors. Because as you said, these wheels are not just wheels, they're also The drive mechanism. So each one of those wheels has a one quarter horsepower electric motor built right into it. And that was the power that they determined they would need to drive around on the moon. So in total, it only has one horsepower. But remember, there's only one sixth gravity on the moon. So this is a car weighing 400 something pounds. On the moon, it only weighs 70 something pounds. So imagine if you put a one horsepower engine in a vehicle that weighs 70 pounds. You'd have like a pretty killer dirt bike, you know?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I have here that a recommended or the official speed was eight miles per hour, but Eugene Cernan got it up to 11.2, which gives him the unofficial lunar land speed record.
0: Amazing the fastest man off earth. Yeah. Fastest man on another surface.
1: And I was trying to think about 11.2 miles per hour. I looked up the average running speed, which is for a man or a woman is somewhere around seven or eight miles per hour. So when this thing's going 11 miles per hour, if you're running after it, you can't catch it. So it's kind of moving up there. So yeah, one thing I was just thinking about, Jamie, when you mentioned testing it on those dirt tracks that one of the things I saw, they actually tested it on the Vomit Comet. I didn't know that they brought a, a mock-up of the rover onto the Vomit Comet so that they could test the astronauts getting in and out of it in low gravity. Yeah. There's some amazing footage of this. They, they couldn't do it. They couldn't get it in and out. And that's why there are toe holds on the rover, because the astronauts told them, if you don't put toe holds to grab my feet, then I'm just going to float out of this thing. And that's how they developed the seatbelts and the toe holds.
0: Totally. It's just like this metal bar that sticks out from the side of the rover. In fact, when you see the photos of it folded up, it's very prominent. So it's completely uncomplicated, but it's the type of thing you would only know to add if you were testing in the actual situation. They didn't realize this until they were in the one-sixth gravity that was only able to be simulated accurately by that those parabolic flights. And yeah, I, I saw the same clip. It's really funny to that that was the problem. They all this technology, all this training, all this stuff, and the problem is, oh, the guy can't sit in the seat. He can't <laughs> <Yeah>. get in.
1: <laughs> Another one that Phil mentioned is they, they couldn't flip the switches because the gloves, the fingers on the gloves were too big. You know. Oh
0: right. You can make yeah.
1: switches inside the lander where you're not wearing a spacesuit differently than something that needs to function on the. Yeah, which again is, it, I guess, in retrospect or something. Or having considered it, it's obvious, but it it does seem silly at the time. Like, that's the thing you have to solve for, toe holds and big switches, but sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, that reminds me when you're thinking about the type of affordances that they had to give astronauts who are wearing these bulky gloves, the control system on this is really interesting. It started out as a simple joystick, like, you know, just a sort of trigger grip joystick, and you would push forward to go forward, lean it left to go left, right to go right, pull back to engage the brakes and then pull back and press a button to go in reverse so it was very simple but with that little joystick and in this big bulky suit reaching over to hold it and then continuously driving was really uncomfortable so they ended up making it much bigger and putting it in kind of a t-shape looks almost like a hammerhead and that way the astronauts could rest their hands on top of it and there was a nice resting position and then they could easily manipulate it to drive the rover
1: has the added benefit of looking very cool. Kind of has like yeah. a joystick character to it.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about how they actually got this thing inside that triangle-shaped storage compartment. The way that this was solved is that Pavlix came up with the idea to fold it. And I'll try and describe this. Basically, both the front and back wheels as you know two-wheel units fold up and over towards the inside of the car. 180 degrees. So you've made the car shorter. Then they fold inwards. So each wheel is now tilted in towards each other. So you end up with something that has a flat bottom and then a sort of triangular top. And that's how they made it into this shape that, oh, also the seats have to fold down flat before you do this. But that's how they made it into a shape that could fit inside that little compartment.
1: Yeah, which leads us to how did they unpack it? And I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but there's, maybe my second favorite clip of this whole thing you can find online is a a 10 minute unloading sequence from Apollo 15. And I love it because sort of for the same reason that I was saying earlier that this whole thing has very strong 12 year old appeal. This moment has the feeling of dad unpacking the minivan on a family vacation, because it's, you might say to yourself, okay, what is deploying the rover look like? Well, it's probably a series of highly choreographed steps that have very discrete sequences. In fact, no, <laughs> there's basically <laughs> there's basically a rope that's attached to a tailgate. And if you watch the the video of David Scott and James Irwin on Apollo 15 pulling this thing down, it, it's, it's quite amazing. And there's one exchange in particular that I love. So they're yanking on it and it's sort of, unfolding in pieces and not going entirely as planned i have the exchange here david says so let's line this up a little straighter here maybe pull the rear back towards me and james goes it's good on my side and he goes well, let's pick it up and move it around my way or your way my way maybe pull it a little bit and they can't figure it out which is, <laughs> it's like
0: totally hilarious It's like they're moving a couch into somebody's apartment
1: yeah, and so they get stuck, and they call NASA, and they they sort of describe the problem. And there's a pause in the audio where NASA engineers are, I guess, scribbling away their chalkboard. Finally, NASA gets back to them, and they go, "Pull on the front end," and that's the. <laughs> but somehow they do. They pull on the front end and they yank it off the lander, and there it is, ready to go. It sort of plops out, and very soon afterwards, they they're ready to take off.
0: Yeah, the the designers tried to make it as automatic as possible, but also as fail-proof as possible. So it's a big spring-loaded mechanism that, just like you said, it's ropes and pulleys and ribbons to kind of pull it out of there. And then it was meant to take mostly take on its own shape, but it it sounds like it needed a little bit of coaxing to get there.
1: And there's a magical moment you could find right—it's actually— Unfortunate how it's filmed, because you you just get a little corner of it moving, but the audio is great when they they go through the checklist, and finally they fire it up for the first time, and they roll out of frame, and somebody from NASA Mission Control just says, extraordinary.
0: Yeah. It actually reminds me of, of something I read about that happened long before that moment, a much less triumphant moment, when they had first done this unfolding mechanism and they were going to demonstrate it for some of the NASA brass and all these fancy important people and they set up the demo and they pull the rope and it just half deploys it kind of flops forward and jams and then I don't know who it was but somebody recounts this in an interview that he heard in the background a German scientist just say we will fix this to the whole crowd (laughs) of sign, you know, of dignitaries. Nice. Yeah. So, you know, they described this actually as an incredibly rewarding project, but quite a stressful one because it was just problem after problem after problem that had to be solved in unique ways. And as we were discussing, it's an incredibly accelerated timeline for something like this.
1: There's also one more Apollo 15 moment that I really love, which is, Cut to they're they're running through another series of checks and I believe it's David Scott says to Mission Control, I'm gonna go slow here for a while and play it cool. And Mission Control says, you know, good, sounds reasonable. And then minutes later he's just blasting around. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Well, I mean these, you know, these are still this is still the era where all the astronauts are test pilots. So right. they want they want to go fast. Right. <laughs> you know, they wanna see what this thing can do. This is neither here nor there, but I believe this is still the most expensive car ever built. Oh. Is that still true? I think so. The final cost was 38 million for all four. So that's close to 10 million a car.
1: I found a nice description of it. One horsepower, no doors, no roof, no body, and lawn
0: chairs for seats. Amazing. So yeah, there was a little bit of a malfunction the first time they deployed it. The Oh, I know what I forgot to mention. One of the coolest things about it is it has four-wheel steering. So when you manipulate that joystick to go left or right, the front wheels turn in the direction you want to go, and then the back wheels turn the opposite way. So the turning radius on this thing is extremely tight. It can turn around almost in its own radius, like just you know nearly in place. And so what happened is when they first deployed it, the front wheel steering was not operating. But luckily, this is NASA. Everything's redundant. So they just disabled that and used only their rear wheel steering until they could fix it a little bit later.
1: Yeah, it actually did. Did you find, did it get fixed or did it kind of fix itself?
0: I didn't hear the exact detail, but it sounded like they just messed with it and it like clicked into place or something. You know, like it didn't sound like there was a specific thing. Just they drove it around and then the next time they went to drive it. I don't know. I, I don't know if something was jammed. I'd have to look more into it.
1: Because there's a there's am asking because there's a great bit of audio where, They get back in it for the second time and everything's working and they call down the mission control and ask if somebody came up during the night to fix it.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Did somebody fly from Marshall Space Center? Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, so let's give it a little bit of context. We have this incredible vehicle, but I want to talk about the importance because sometimes people would think, yeah, it's really cool that we flew a car to the moon, but why? Like, isn't that sort of extravagant? You know, it has such great symbolism. It's really, really fun. But what is the purpose And it comes down to the fact that it truly wasn't possible to explore certain parts of the moon without a rover. The reason being is that you have to land in a flat area. If you look up at the moon, you'll see that there are dark spots and light spots. The dark spots are essentially the flat plains, what they call seas, like Sea of Tranquility. And that's a really good landing spot because there aren't big, huge rocks. But you're only going to see one type of rock when you go there so if you want to explore other parts of the moon you have to be able to get far away from your landing site and the only way to do that effectively is with a rover yeah which led me to something
1: which is both kind of amazing and also potentially terrifying which is i was reading about the the navigation system they had to build they had to build a Kind of primitive GPS to get them back on track of something. Oh,
0: yeah, but it was just dead reckoning.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, what what sort of struck me about that, I guess, again, without reflecting on it, I thought, like, why would you need a GPS? I and mean, they're not going that far. Can they see the light But in fact, they, they were traveling pretty far. Not only that, but there's no magnetic field on the moon. So a compass wouldn't work. And there isn't anything to get your bearings based upon because everything sort of looks the same. And so there was a real concern that they were going to drive off and kind of turn around a little hill and then be completely lost and have utterly no way to get themselves back to the lander and back home, which is a, is one of these alternate history, terrifying futures where what if the astronauts got a little carried away and got turned around and then just, Drove until they ran out of air on the moon.
0: Yeah. Or, you know, drove into a crater that they couldn't ascend back out of or something like that. The other thing that's interesting about this, in terms of how easy it is to get lost, is that because the moon is so much smaller than the Earth, you go over the horizon really fast. So Hmm. I forget exactly how far, but it was only a few kilometers before they turned around and could no longer see the lunar lander because they had literally gone over the horizon like a ship way out in the ocean.
1: Yeah, apparently the way they solved this is they had odometer readings taken from each wheel, and that was fed into a computer, which at a certain point, wherever they were, they could you know toggle a switch and it would plot a course directly back to the lander for them. And then if that failed, they were all taught how to read a lunar sundial so that they could try to get their bearings.
0: That's awesome. Like using ancient navigation techniques on a new celestial body. Yeah, yeah. the the navigation system was essentially a modernized version of dead reckoning, which is an old term for when sailors would navigate simply by knowing their starting point and then knowing the direction and travel time. So not actually ever tracking where you are, but just tracking how you move. So like you were saying, the odometers are measuring how far the Car is going by how much the wheels are turning. It's also recording their steering. And then it's just essentially reversing that whole process using math to get you back to your starting point.
1: Yeah, amazing.
0: And because this system is not entirely accurate, sometimes they could have been as much as 100 meters away from the lunar rover when they got back. But obviously, you can just see it and go back to it at that point.
1: Yeah, I guess the ultimate fail safe was they were given a max distance where if the whole thing broke down, they'd have just enough oxygen to walk themselves back. And so what they would do is, they would go to the farthest point first, and then they would kind of wind around. But apparently on Apollo 17, this got relaxed a little bit because 15 and 16 went so well. And Apollo 17, they just kind of got loose with it and drove around.
0: Yeah, Apollo 17 had a lot of exploration points. So to, to get back to the discussion of the different kinds of rock, what happened at first when he land on the moon the only rock that we found was black basalt, just very black rock. But we knew that there was other kinds of rock because you can just look at the moon and there are bright spots and there are different colors of rock up there. And the only place to find that brighter kind of rock is on higher elevation. Essentially, if you look at the moon, you're almost seeing a topographical map just by the colors, the shades on the moon. So, the rover allowed them to get to these places. And what ended up happening is that Okay, so I'll back up a little bit. The theory of how the moon was formed is that a very, very large body, something maybe as large as Mars, collided with Earth billions of years ago, knocking out huge amounts of Earth material that then were gravitationally attracted to each other out in space and formed the moon. But we didn't know before the lunar rover missions what happened in between. Like, that whole process forms a moon that would look one way, probably all white all over the surface, but now we have a moon that looks a different way. So anyway, what they discovered when they went up onto these higher peaks were these white crystal rocks. And that really confirmed the theories about how the moon was formed, because what people thought is that all of those dark spots are just places where there were impacts, meteor impacts. Huge amounts of energy hit the moon, magma is kicked up from underneath, that magma becomes the black basalt, and then that's what's interrupting all that white crystal rock.
1: Yeah, and I guess one of the many things that they did, and I don't know if, you've, if you found this or have any information on this, but apparently by the time they got around to Apollo 17, one of the things they wanted to do to learn more about the rocks was deploy bombs for seismic readings. Did you find that?
0: Wow, no, I actually I didn't hear about that. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah, apparently they literally had bombs on board, and they needed to drive far away, far enough away from the lander that, you know, when they detonated the bombs, they would be okay, and then they could read the seismic readings from the detonation, and that would tell them something about the composition of the of the moon. But that's just got to be catnip for conspiracy people that Apollo seventeen guys were riding around with bombs in their buggy.
0: Yeah. It actually reminds me of a Mr. Show sketch where scientists plan to blow up the moon and it gets on the news and everyone supports it and they're all going to blow up the moon until they have this chimp that they're training to go on the mission. And the chimp si- gives them in sign language and he says, why? And then they fire the chimp and blow up the moon. <laughs> <Nice>. um, <laughs> so, so this is a really great discovery. When they find this white crystal rock and they do studies on it, it, it allows them to confirm this long believed but never proved theory about how the moon was formed. But it wasn't until Apollo 17 when they actually flew a geologist on the flight that they made one of the most significant discoveries that truly confirmed this and also produced some really great exclamations from the astronauts because it's another piece of the radio recording where they're walking around and this is on 17 where the rover went to all kinds of interesting places in between mountains and things like that. They're walking around and one of the astronauts is like, oh my God, it's orange. There's orange rock. I see orange dirt. And he can't believe it. And sure enough, there was orange rocks there on the moon. And what they later found out is that these were globules of glass from a pyroclastic process when you had essentially volcanic activity. Because this is also something that was new is, oh my God, there were volcanoes on the moon. There was both natural volcanic activity that would occur after the meteor hit, but even the meteor hit itself would kick up all this magma and that high heat, it would explode this material up into the, not the air, but, you know, up away from inside the moon, where it would cool very rapidly into these little orange globules of glass. And that's what they were seeing as the orange rocks. And that, again, confirmed the theory about how the moon was formed.
1: Well, also must have been very vindicating for the team that worked on these rovers, because it's it's another example of something that just would have been impossible to find if they had to walk out there themselves.
0: Absolutely. And um, in fact, Pavlix later said that he was told if they hadn't been able to work out the lunar rover problem and design something that could fly there and be successful, that it may have jeopardized Apollo's 15, 16, and 17 entirely. There was a lot of pressure from Congress to just cancel them because it's, you know, we crossed the finish line, why do it again, all that silliness. But the additional scientific capabilities, the discoveries that were possible because of these rovers, are what kept this going. So it, you know, it turned out in the beginning it was like, how are we going to get this rover as part of the lunar mission? And then in the end, it became absolutely essential.
1: You mentioned earlier the cameras on the front of the rovers that mission control could see everything the astronauts were seeing, and it got, got me thinking about this is amazing backseat driver moment because here are the astronauts on this rover trying to explore the moon and then in their ear are people back on earth screaming turn left turn right because <laughs> they're totally
0: interesting yeah and that video camera was remote controlled from mission control so they're aiming it around and looking at whatever they want to look like so it must have also been a funny little robotic presence you know like you're sitting there driving your car and you see this camera and you know that it's somebody all the way back on earth This also led to some fantastic shots that we wouldn't have got, that we would not have been able to capture if we didn't have the lunar rovers because of that video camera. And these are the shots of the lunar ascent vehicle bringing the astronauts away from the moon. We didn't have a camera to record that and transmit back until this. The other interesting thing is that in the final shot in Apollo 17, when you see that lunar ascent vehicle going up and the camera tilts up and pulls back kind of zooms out yeah in order to achieve that the guy who was controlling the camera had to carefully time it and send the commands six seconds before it actually happened because of the time of flight of the signal to get to the moon
1: i was wondering about that that is a really spooky bit of footage it's another one that if anyone hasn't seen it look look up apollo 17 i don't know what would would you say jamie apollo 17 lander ascent probably yeah, it's, I was wondering how they did that because it definitely feels like they left somebody behind, you know, like that, that's what it's like. It feels like somebody's on the moon filming this and then they have a moment to think to themselves, wait a minute, how am I going to get off?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And the guy, the guy who was controlling it said that he actually wasn't even looking at the video screen when he did that. He was looking at notes on a piece of paper and a timer. Because he had worked out with his colleagues before exactly when to press the buttons to do the commands. So he didn't see it live. He He saw it after when he looked at it, it, you know, on record. He nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. And he was not going to get another chance, at least not until hopefully the near future.
1: You know, actually that, that makes me wonder something that I was thinking earlier today, you know, in this era where hopefully we live to see another lunar mission and hopefully much more if we had to build another rover how much do you think it would look like this rover do you think that the tires would look like those tires do you think that like how much how much of what was developed from that still stands or I know I'm asking you to speculate but I'm just curious if we did it today would it would it be very similar
0: yeah I mean I I would guess that a few things would definitely be kept I mean there's some fundamental principles here that are, that have not changed. If we're going back to the moon, the moon is the moon, the gravity is what it is. I think that, you know, again, I'm, I'm not a, a rocket scientist or a, or a car engineer, but I would really think that these wheels are one of the best answers. I'd be surprised if this wasn't at least a strong candidate for the type of wheel you're going to bring back to the moon. One thing that would definitely be different, and this gives me a opportunity to tell another cool tech thing about the lunar rover but the batteries would be very very different that's a technology that has changed dramatically in the intervening years so you would get a lot more efficiency out of them they would run cooler while putting out this you know a similar amount of comparable power and you would just have a lot higher energy density so for the same amount of weight You'd be able to carry much more power the motors themselves would likely be upgraded but you know electric motor technology has not really undergone revolutionary change the way that battery technology has but here's a cool thing the lunar rover batteries introduced a difficult cooling problem normally you know battery technology back then was not what it is today you didn't get as much power inside the battery and also the batteries could overheat a lot more easily So they had to put a cooling system, and normally a cooling system would be water pumps and pipes and all this stuff that they absolutely did not have the weight budget for. So here's what they ended up doing. They encased the batteries inside a capsule filled with paraffin wax. Hmm. So the batteries are totally surrounded by solid wax. As they heat up, they melt the wax, and the energy transfer of that heat into the wax to melt it creates a nice smooth effect in terms of the temperature change then when they're done with their little you know rover mission for the day they park it and they open up the top of these battery compartments and they have radiators essentially just you know metal heat sinks that are sucking that heat away and the paraffin wax re-solidifies around the battery and they're ready to go for the next drive
1: wow amazing yeah i read that i don't know if this is related to the the wax but I saw that on Apollo seventeen when the fender broke, like I mentioned earlier, one of the things that happened is the dust that was kicked up covered the batteries and it caused them to overheat.
0: Oh yeah, I mean I don't know if that would be related, but it may be that it compromised the amount of surface area of the battery that could come in contact with the coolant. That would be my guess.
1: But I want to fact check this, but. Yeah, I, I was reading that they were encouraged in designing the rovers to use as many off-the-shelf parts as possible. And and I read somewhere that the batteries were actually truck batteries.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, it makes sense. I think I read that it had 150 amp hours in it, which is funny to think about for how big they were. But to give you a comparison, if you were going to get a little you know, power bank today that had that much power, it would be smaller than a lunchbox, but in in this case the batteries were all those big boxes on the front of the car
1: so yeah after apollo 17 they blasted back to earth and they left the rover behind and they've actually left of course all three rovers behind so they're they're still there and i was wondering if you could see any and in fact you can there there's some lunar reconnaissance orbiter photos from 2009 and 2011 the apollo 17 landing site and you can see I'm not sure about 15, and 16, but for sure you can see 17 sitting there on the surface right where they left it.
0: Totally. And you can also see the tire tracks in those photos of where it drove, these funny little squiggly lines all around it. So yeah, and that's that was the three flights when we put cars on the moon. Hopefully it won't be the last time. A couple of quick stats on it, just to give you a better idea. It was 10 feet long, 3.6 feet or about one meter high. It weighed 460 pounds on Earth, but only 76 pounds on the Moon. The first rover, on Apollo 15, went just over 17 miles, or about 28 kilometers, and drove for three hours. On Apollo 16, the second one went slightly less, only 16 and a half miles, but a longer drive, three hours and 26 minutes. And then 17 was the longest, covering more than 22 miles, or almost 36 kilometers for four hours and 26 minutes of drive time. So overall, these are representing about 10 times the exploration distance that was possible before we had a rover. So if astronauts were just walking around on the moon, the radius of exploration would have been much, much smaller.
1: Amazing. Yeah, I guess closing this out, I'm just thinking about, again, listening to some of the audio as they're deploying Apollo 15. And there's a palpable sense of joy. I mean, I, I don't know what other word I would, I would use coming, yeah. coming through the speakers. You could tell that, I mean, here they are, they're on the moon, they're astronauts, they've, they've, they've left planet Earth, they've accomplished so much already. But but then just this moment where they're kind of frustrated that they can't get the go-kart ready fast enough really is, is one of the more human moments of the entire space program from my point of view.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It, it, I think joy is, is 100% the right word to use. And also remember that this this ride was unlike anything that they had experienced. You know, they did a little bit of testing on Earth where they would pick up the rover with a crane and drive it alongside so that they could simulate the lower weight. But once they were actually on the moon and got the real thing, it was almost like a strange sort of flying because they were so so lightweight and to feel the way that the suspension interacted and bounced them up and down i think there was it, it must have been just an incredible experience something truly new to them even though they had driven cars their whole life
1: yeah and it strikes me that so few people have flown in outer space so few people have walked on the moon but the fewest i suppose have driven on the moon
0: that's a good point this is the most exclusive pilot club in space flight is people who have piloted the lunar rover on the moon. So that's it for this episode of the Supercluster podcast. Thanks for listening. You can hear more about this and other great space stories at our website, supercluster.com. And remember, as always, space is for everyone.